for me, I think, you know, Leslie's saying they have so little. That's, that's the first thing that hits you. The, other, the next thing that hits you is they're actually doing more with their little than we're doing with our much. And it's absolutely challenging. Um, I'm, I was really glad because, you know, God's just not interested in obeying our plans. I don't know if you've noticed this in your own life. And so we made plans, and really we found out that God was just interested in getting us closer to Zimbabwe so that he could get us into, into there. And that was his plan all along. Um, and there's so many things that, like, if we had more people, uh, we had just enough people for all of us and our luggage, including Leslie's luggage, <laughs> into, into two vehicles. If we had had one more person, there'd be, we'd have had to have three vehicles, which we would not have been able to find because nobody there has cars. Uh, we, wouldn't have, we probably would have not been able to fly out of Mozambique, the airport, because there wouldn't have been enough seats on the plane to get us back, so somebody would have spent the night in a holding cell. Um, if we had had 10 people instead of nine. Uh, if we had had, it would have been harder to find places for us to stay with, because the last trip we went on, there was like 32 people. Imagine trying to find a place to stay for 32 people versus nine. I mean, it's just, when you start thinking about all the things that God had set up on this trip, because me and Carl were kind of disappointed we only had nine going. And now I'm like, whoo, glad we didn't, didn't have more, Right. And so it's just an amazing thing. There, we, we got to hear, I think, the vision for Africa. Um, Disciple Nations is sort of their New Frontiers Africa section, right? They call it Disciple Nations. And so they're headquartered in Zimbabwe. So we actually got to sit down with the leaders of that group and hear that their vision not just for Mozambique, which is what we've been hearing here for a few years, but to hear the vision for Africa. And so we sit down and hear, you've already experienced all this poverty, right? You've seen, you know, the shoeless children walking down the street. You've seen all of that. And then the first thing out of his mouth is our vision, Disciple Nation's vision is to transform the entire continent of Africa. And you're like, oh man. My goal is to transform Kernersville. And y'all are, y'all are talking about, and then he starts to give some statistics. Um, the first one was the, the population of Africa is the fastest growing population on the planet. Right now, that's like 1.3 billion. By 2050, it'll be doubled. Try to get your head around those numbers. It'll be higher population than China. China is tapering off, and Africa is booming. 2050, that's not that long. And, and they're going, okay, how do we reach not just 1.3 billion people, but how do we reach 3 billion people? What kind of things do we need to be doing as a church? We need to change the way we plant churches. We need to change the way we educate. We need to change the way we preach. We need to change everything we're doing. Um, and it's the third, you know, Mozambique is the third poorest country in Africa, and Africa is the poorest continent on the planet. Zimbabwe is like fourth or something like that. So incredible poverty, generational poverty, and at the same time, a total lack of education. And how do we, so how do we educate 3 billion people? So there's this feeling of responsibility the church has there for the nations. Nobody's saying, well, we need to elect the right leaders so that the government will educate our children. Because I know they're not. They're not saying we need to vote for a better president so there'll be better 
programs to reach to, to help impoverished people get, get, to give them better benefits so that they will be lifted out of poverty by the government because the government is never going to do that. So the church feels this intense sense of responsibility for all the things that we offload onto our government or other, other people, larger churches. We're a big church. If, we, if you took us and dropped us in the middle of Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, we would be a big church. And so we tend to think, well, we're small, what can we do? We tend to think, well, we don't have a lot of money as a church, so what can we do? And so we shrug our shoulders. And over there, they're like, we have to do something or nothing will get done. So there's this amazing attitude. So they, their vision is that, like two things. The main thing is they're going to plant churches. But you can't just plant a church when there's no infrastructure. And so they're, they're supporting education, either starting schools or um, almost every church there has a school, runs a school. Um, or they financially support government schools, which is also a weird thing to get your head around because here government schools are like, keep religion out of the school. Over there they don't care. Whether it's Islam or Christianity, they just, if you say we will financially support and we'll go into your school and provide you with teachers and help support kids and we'll start a chicken farm on your property so that the school can, if you're saying we'll help you, they will let you do anything. And so the idea of like, for us, we were like, well, they won't let us preach. Over there, they'll, your kids are learning, memorizing scripture every day. So when they say educate, they mean like Christian education. And we're starting these schools or we're supporting schools. That's one wing of their ministry. The other is, um, my mind just went blank. It's in my notes. Oh, using the resources of Africa to break the cycle of poverty. Amazing thing is Africa has the most natural resources of any other continent. And it's the poorest. God has actually given them everything they need in the ground. Um, and places like China are coming in and taking the diamonds out of the ground, they're taking the coal out of the ground, the lithium out of the ground, the oil out of the ground, and they're taking it and they're paying people these, you know, so we'll give you a job. And in a country with 96% unemployment, imagine that. We complain about like 3%. Unemployment <laughs> is terrible here. Try 96%, meaning there's just no jobs. So... China will come in and say, we're going to put this, try this coal plant. We're going to take the resource of coal out and take it. And we'll, in, in return, we'll give you this job and pay you nothing. But you'll be grateful for it because you can say, I have a job, because no one else has a job. And, and Islam is doing the same thing, except they're coming in and building mosques. And so there's this rush into Africa. And the church is, generally speaking, just lackadaisical about it around the world like they just don't see the opportunity and so disciple nations are saying well we'll plant churches and we'll break the cycle of poverty ourselves and we'll do it but i'm going to get into the parable of talents in just a minute that that's the foundation idea behind what they're doing um it's amazing the culture is the other amazing statistic that i remember is the average age of a person in africa right now is 18 to 19. That's the average. Think about how young, that's incredibly young. And that, that population is what's booming. So that average is probably going to get younger and younger between now and 2050. 
So, but the weird thing about Africa is, if you're 40 years old, you are often referred to as a youth. It's a very, culturally very old. And so the people that run businesses, what businesses there are, the people that run churches, um, that run the country, are generally 50 plus, and they hold on to that position, and they won't give it to an 18, 19 year old. And so those 18, 19 year olds are sitting around doing nothing, waiting until they get to 40 to be able to do anything. And so one of the things that's just revolutionizing in the church is they're going, you're 18 years old, start a business, get to work, do something with your life. Do you want to lead a church? Do you want to plant a church? Here, we'll help you plant a church. We'll give you real responsibility. And they're going, what? Are you serious? I, I thought I had to wait till I'm 40. No, your life is short. Get on it. Africa is exploding in growth. We have to reach this pool of people that right now is just idle. Um, so there, you know, there's this poverty, and one of the things that was so striking is they told me a story. There's many, many, many stories like this. Um, well, I'll tell you two. One is, this is what poverty does to your mentality. Um, at one of the schools we visited, he has a pig farm, a chicken farm. This church he pastors meets in the school building, and then he has um, a farm that they grow vegetables in, right? All on the same property. And we're walking around looking at everything, and we come up to his pig farm. He says, well, my pig pen used to be way over there on the other side of the garden, but people were stealing my pigs. So I had to move them closer in where I could keep an eye on them. And he said, and the people who were stealing the pigs were the parents of the children in the school that the pigs support so that they can have an education. Because he, and that's the, meant, like they see, I, I'm not eating today. And so I'll shortcut my future by satisfying my need right now. Um, another great example was a farmer, like over there, they have cows. And the cows are like your, your life insurance policy, your 401k. Right? If you have one cow, you, can, you just keep that cow until you get old, and then you can sell the cow or slaughter the cow. Right? It's also a status thing. So they told me a story about a guy who had 11 cows. And it was a really bad drought, and they let their cows just wander around because it's like showing off. Like, look how many cows I have. Right? With the, they put a bell around their neck. There's no fences. They're very annoying. They get in the road. Um, we almost hit like four cows. Um, <laughs> while we were there, so they just wander. But it's like kind of saying, look how many cows, that's Bill's cow, and that's his cow, look how many cows he has. But this guy had 11 cows, there's a drought, they're all starving, all the cows are starving, his family is starving, but he won't sell a cow. Because that poverty thing, I have no future, this is my future, I must hold on to it, and not sell it, fear. And he said, they had to convince him to sell one of your cows, to feed your 10 cows that you have left over and your family, and he wouldn't do it. And the pastor had to spend weeks, this is what pastoring in Africa is like. pastor had to spend weeks talking with this guy, convincing him, look, I will go with you to sell the cow. I'll make, help you sell it so you get a good price, and then I'll help you use that money, and then maybe you, know, you should really sell all your cows. That's what they do, because cows don't make you money. And so it took weeks of convincing the guy to not starve all of his cows and to, that it was okay to sell one of them and help him not be afraid to trust God enough to sell a cow. 
It's like using your 401k to live when it's a during a drought. Um, so these are like problems that I just don't have. I mean, the heart of it, the heart issues are familiar, aren't they? I mean, you know what it feels like to think, well, am I going to dip into my savings or am I going to dip into, should I sell a car to, to live? And you start feeling this panic because you have this security and comfort in your stuff. Well, they have the same problem, but it's with cows and chickens. It's amazing. Um, so we got like a much better context, I think, for what's happening in Mozambique and why it's such a big deal. The Ebenezer School that Leslie mentioned is the prototype for what they're doing in Mozambique, um, where they, because they're having the, the, the art of growing things and taking care of animals is, is, has been lost in Africa, weirdly enough. Um, that's the resource they have. I mean, think about it. If you can't get a job to support yourself, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to look at the ground, the dirt underneath your feet, and figure out a way to make money out of the dirt, right? And they have all these resources, but they don't know how to use them. So now in, in the education thing, they're teaching them scripture, and they're teaching them things like, what is fertilizer? What's potassium and all the different nitrates and nitrites in the ground and how you, um, why you would get manure and put it in the ground and when you should do it and why water is important, why you have to water your plants. But they don't know. And basic economics. Um, and they're teaching these things, and that's what Ebenezer does. They take these young, that age group, 17 to about 21, and these are like really broken kids. They, you, you have to be chosen. You apply. They get about 1,000 applicants each time, and they do about half that. And they choose the best applicants. They're not looking for people who just want to hand out because they won't, they won't. We'll talk about that too in a minute. They won't just give you stuff. Um, they'll teach you how to get it yourself. And they take these kids in who were just from unbelievably dark backgrounds. And they could do this program in one year. That's what she told me. We could do this in one year. We could teach them how to grow stuff and take care of cattle and chickens in about a year and send them out to do it themselves. But they have extended it to three years. They've just basically like put filler in and added like all these like doctrine classes, basic Christianity classes, because they want to disciple them, and they think they need about three years to take somebody from not being a Christian at all to being a mature Christian who can support a church plant and start a business on their own in three years. And that's what they're doing. They're just spitting them out. They just have had a graduation one right before we got there. Um, it's incredible. It is out in the middle of nothing in the bush. Um, at night, all the power goes out because everything's run by generators out there. Um, and there's just, just huts and dirt and dust, and out of the middle of the bush, they have carved out this amazing working farm where they're growing everything from pecan trees to corn, tomatoes, um, all the vegetables you can imagine. I mean, it was amazing just to hear her talk about the pecan trees. You remember that? Because um, they take seven years. And they've only been able to find, and she intentionally found pecan trees because she knew it took seven years, and she wanted to teach them the, the value of doing something that is not going to immediately benefit, but putting work into something that's going to take seven years really to get money out of those trees. It's really for the next generation. And so she scours Africa looking for some pecan trees, finds them, and plants them, and she's only found one person 
out of all of their Ebenezer students that would tend to those trees because it takes seven years. But the money they can make on those trees once they get established is big. And so this guy comes out every day, waters these pecan trees, tends to these pecan trees, making zero money off of it, knowing that in seven years they'll dig them up and either sell the trees or they'll replant them somewhere and sell the pecans that they get off the trees. I'm like, what an amazing, like the merging of practical and discipleship is everything to them. Um, There's nothing they're doing. We tend to go, well, business belongs over here and spiritual belongs over here. And they've just put them together in a way that if we did that here, it would make all of you uncomfortable. Well, I think business and church should be separate. And if you say that to them, they would be like, well, that's insane. Why would you do that? Like you're confining people to poverty when you do that. Um, So I want to just look at um, the parable of the talents. I heard this... um, when that first meeting where we t- they talked about the vision for Africa, which is so challenging. Yeah, it's so big and expansive and bold and aggressive. Um, and the foundation of it is this parable. And it just gave me a new perspective on it. I just taught this like two years ago uh, when we went through b- the book of Matthew. But I wanted to kind of go through it because I think it has a lot to say to us. And it also, I think, conveys the heart of what they're doing there. And so when we go back, to Mozambique. By the way, we have not been rejected from Mozambique forever. We still don't really know what happened. Um, but we've got a way around it um, with the, using a consultant to get visas. It's like paying a guy to put his name on your visa application. Um, so we will be going back to Mozambique. For me, it'll be the first time. Well, not technically. I have been to the airport just hung out there for a couple of hours and then left. So technically, I didn't get my, my passport stamped for Mozambique. Um, Eliana was very upset. Uh, but we did do four countries, technically. Uh, we did Mozambique. We stepped on the ground there, and I saw it from the air. <laughs> and Zimbabwe, um, Zambia, because we did a sunset cruise on the Zambezi River, and on the other side of the Zambezi is Zambia, and the captain took us across, and he said, don't tell anyone, but we just crossed over into Zambia. Um, So I've been there, technically. And what was the fourth one? South Africa, Africa. yeah. So we went to four countries in 10 days. Pretty great. Uh, So let's look at this parable, and then I'll close. I'm not doing a slideshow, uh, because that's terribly boring. You know, it's like, Here's Frank. You don't know him. You'll never meet him, but he's a great guy. And, but I will put some pictures together in a folder and some videos. I got some good video of Leslie doing her testimony. That was really cool. Um, and some other stuff that I'll just put in a folder, and if you want to look at them, you can. All right. So Matthew 25, 14 to 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more or more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So a talent is just is the, was the largest denomination of money that they had at the time. Okay? It's not, we actually get our concept in English of your natural ability talent from this parable, okay? Um, so it's not wrong to think that way, but that's, this is just a, a type of money, okay? So there's four characters here, right? About when you read a parable, there's basically a point per character, right? So you have four characters here, a master, which is God the Father, three servants that are stewards of his property, okay? The one's given five, which is a lot of money. The second's given two, which is a moderate amount of money. And the last is given one, which is not very much money, okay? Uh, the key here is that it's not so much the amount of money, it's that there are three different kind of groups. You have the rich and you have the poor and something like a middle class in the middle, okay? Different, just little sort of lots in life, okay? The first two in, in servants invest their talents and they double it, which is amazing. They double their money and the master returns, is very happy with them and their work and he's pleased and then he blesses them with more. And the last one, the last servant, the one with one, does nothing. He just sort of stores it away. He makes nothing out of it. But he doesn't lose it. He keeps it, and he returns exactly what the master gave him. And the master, the father, God, is angry, takes his one talent and gives it to someone else. And so imagine for a second in Africa when they teach this, they say, you think that because you have very little you deserve to be given more. Because you're poor, someone else should come give you something to compensate for your poverty. But God says it's the one who has the least at the end that it will be taken away from him. And they go, oh. well, that's not fair. They say, but what has God given you? Right? Well, God has given something to everyone. God doesn't give us all the same amount of resources. He says to each according to his ability, his ability. That means that nobody starts in the same place in life. None of us in this room started in the same place. Some of you start to had terrible parents or no parents. Or you, your parents were so bad you wished it would have been better for you to have no parents. 
Your parents are actually a net negative in your life. Or you started with no money, or you started in a family that didn't value education, or didn't value hard work, or whatever it is. There's lots. We all start in a different place. And some of you started with great parents who taught you the value of working hard, and taught you the value of being honest. And you grew up in a Christian home, going to church, learning about Jesus. And that's the only thing you've ever known. You started in a different place. And it had nothing to do with you and your awesomeness or your lack of awesomeness. It was just God's sovereign choice. It's very easy to walk through a place like Africa and feel guilty about starting in a different place and feel pity for people who didn't start where you started. But at no point does Jesus ever feel pity. He has compassion. Don't get those mixed up. But he doesn't go, oh, you poor soul. He says, you just got one talent. And somebody else got five. And you had no control over who it was. And it's got nothing to do with their value as people. It's just what God chose. Take it up with him. This is the first lesson of the parable. God isn't interested in equality as much as he is in faithfulness. And it's a particular type of faithfulness that God is interested in. We define faithfulness by how long we've done something. Well, you've been married 30 years. Wow, you've been so faithful. Well, that's not how God defines faithfulness. Not quitting is like the servant with one talent who buried it in the ground. He just didn't quit. He didn't lose the money. But is that faithfulness? It's not. If you stay in that mode of thinking, like that I should, be, I should have more, it's... it's it's not fair that I didn't start in a better place than I started. It's not fair that I'm not smarter or better looking or didn't have better family, better parents, or better education, or whatever, more money in the bank when I was born. It's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. That leads you to a very dark place. It generates self-pity and a sense of entitlement in your heart that will destroy you, and you will end up losing the little that you do have and squandering it. You end up, you find yourself in the position of that last servant who was given little, did nothing with it, and then has that little taken away. The servant with the five talents will be tempted to think of himself as successful because he has so much more than everyone else. That's sort of the plight of most people in America when you look at the world. We're so rich, we have so much money here, and it must be because we're better. It must be because God loves us more or because we're a little bit more godly or something, a little, more close, a little closer to heaven than the rest of the world because we have so much more. And it's not. It's just God's choice. It's his sovereign blessing. So that five-talent servant will be tempted to do nothing with his talents because he has so many. Why do I need to take a risk? Why do I need to risk the five that I have because I have a lot, so I'll keep it for myself. Isn't that our problem? The more money you have, the more obsessed with keeping your money that you get. The servant with only one talent is tempted to think of himself as a victim that deserves to be given more. He'll think that he needs more talents because before he can invest it. I'm not going to sell my 11th cow 
because I'm afraid I won't get any more. And I have so little, why would I sell what I do have? It's too risky. He'll be tempted to do nothing with his talents because he has so little. You see that? One is tempted to do nothing because he has so much. The other is tempted to do nothing because he has so little. So we're always tempted to compare what we have been given with what others have been given, and that's the trap of the devil. Our compare, Carl always talks about this. We, whenever we compare, we don't compare ourselves to God, we compare ourselves to each other, to our neighbor. When our neighborness gets the new car, we think, oh, my car, suddenly your car seems terrible. I really need a new car because my neighbor got one. And you don't say that, but that's what happens to you, right? It's not until you go somewhere else where they have nothing that you realize how much you have. And suddenly, like, you know, we, I've been thinking, well, we need another car because that kid's driving and probably need to get a third car because, you know, Owen and Eliana are going to be driving. And, you know, then you go over there and, you know, Scott's got a car, a nice car for them, but it's 17 years old with 400,000 miles on it. And these are 400,000 African miles, not, you know, where the potholes will just swallow your entire tire. Not just a little boom, boom, oh, these roads are terrible. Boom, boom. Man, what do I pay taxes for? Fix this road. And over there, it's like, it's like off-roading everywhere, right? And you start to think, well, do I really, am I entitled to three cars? I don't know. I'm going to pray about it. I didn't pray about it before. I just assumed it. Now I'm praying about it. This is the trap of comparing ourselves to each other as we lose context from God's perspective about what we actually have. In the end, this parable teaches us that he will not compare the one talent to the two talent to the five talent. He'll compare what you started with with what you ended with. That's the comparison God will make. I gave you one you gave me one back, I'm not happy. I gave you two, you gave me four back, I'm pleased. It's not about the four, it's not about the number, it's the comparison between what he started you with and what he got in return, what you did with it. That's the kind of comparison that we should be concerned with. What has God given me and what am I doing with it? That's the question. So true faithfulness, as I said a minute ago, is not how long you've done something. That's a weird American mentality. Well, I've been in this same job for 20 years, but have you been a good employee? Have you been a blessing? I've been married for 50 years. How faithful am I? But have you been a horrible husband? <laughs> or have you been a blessing? Have you been life to your spouse? Have you been a part of their growth and maturity in Christ? Have you pushed them forward in maturity in Christ or have you been a dead weight making it hard for them to follow Jesus? How many couples, don't raise your hand, how many couples do you know, somebody else other than you, where they compete with each other constantly and when one does well, it makes the other one grumpy and they're actually a hindrance to each other's joy and peace in Christ. That's not faithfulness. Just because you hung out, you stuck together for 50 years, that's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is 
producing something with God, what God's given you. It has nothing to do with time. These are the questions of faithfulness. All right, so what, the question is, what has God given you? Um, I think my favorite story from Africa was um, this guy named Pete Cunningham who kind of runs some of, most of the stuff in Zimbabwe. He's an amazing guy. I want all of you to meet him one day, but I won't show you a picture because it'll be weird. You won't know. Uh, but he talked about this. He taught this parable um, to this group of, remember, like just d- dirt poor people. It's asked the question, what do you have? Do something with God, what God's given you. God is really convicted and moved by the story, but he comes up to Pete and says, I don't have anything. God's given me nothing. I have no family, no nothing. And he's frustrated. And Pete says, you have, God's given everybody something. So he starts asking questions. And he finds out the guy has a donkey. And he uses this donkey to carry, they do, that's what they do there. They kind of load it up with stuff because they don't have a car, so they walk down to wherever they have to get something, and then they pile it on the donkey, and they walk it back. People do this all over the world. He has a donkey. And Pete says, well, sell your donkey, because that donkey will never make you any money. It's a depreciating asset. It's just getting older, and eventually it's going to die, and that's no good to you, so sell it. He says, well, what do I do for my stuff? He says, well, get a bicycle and put your stuff on a bicycle or carry it yourself, or just figure it out, but sell the donkey. And so he convinces, he says, I'll go with you, and we'll sell it together, and I'll help you get a good price for it. So they do that. He says, okay, it's, it's incredibly risky for him. Because he has nothing. He has one talent. And the idea of risking that one that he has could mean he is left with nothing. And so he says, okay. And so they go and they sell it, and he takes that money, he buys a bicycle with a little bit of it, and the rest of it, Pete sells him a tomato plant. He says, grow tomatoes. I'll teach you how to grow tomatoes. And I'll come over, and I'll show you. I'll teach you everything you need to know. I'll do it with you. We'll water it. We'll treat it. So this is pastoring in Africa. And so he goes, and he sits down, and, he, and the tomato grows, and he turns out he's really good at it. And he sells the tomatoes he gets from that plant, and he makes a little bit of money, and Pete says, now don't don't eat that money. Take all that money and buy more tomato plants. And now you've got a little garden of tomatoes. And I'll teach you how to manage multiple tomato plants because that's a little trickier, right? And he teaches him about that. And he turns out he's really good at it. He takes those tomatoes and he sells them. And he keeps doing that over and over and over, living on next to nothing for a long time, not eating his tomatoes. And then he teaches about You grow one section of your tomatoes that you eat for yourself. Because that's the other thing. People that do farm in Africa do subsistence farming. They just eat all of their crops. The idea of having food in your hand and selling it instead of eating it, it's crazy. So he teaches them about growing some for yourself and disciplining yourself to not eat more than that and the rest you sell. And now this guy is the largest tomato grower in Zimbabwe. And around him and his business, he, he employs 20-plus people. And around his business are several church plants so, so sustained by this one business, one of which meets on the property of his tomato farm. 
That's transforming a place. You take one parable from Jesus that just looks at your life with the lens of faith, says, what has God given me, however small or large it may be, and then you take that and you do something with it for the kingdom, and it transforms a place. And so here we are, and it's convicting to me because I realize that the more you have, the more talents you have, the higher your responsibility. The more you have, the more you have to work to reproduce what you have. And we are loaded down with stuff, with resources, with education. The stuff you know and assume everybody else knows, like just the fact that you know that it's valuable to get a job. Like in America, have you ever noticed if, you know, if you, the more you, longer you have to wait to get paid, the better you get paid, generally speaking. It's not always true. It's changing. You know, you get paid monthly, a monthly salary, an annual salary, and it gets divided up into 12 months. Those tend to be the better jobs versus if somebody gets paid every day, right? There's a philosophy, there's a psychology behind that, which is you learn that there's, some, there's value to being able to work for a long period of time because there might be a bigger payoff at the end. And you just know that. You just know that before I point it out, you probably never noticed it. And all these things that we have, God is saying, you need to do something with it. Put it to work. And so I just want to challenge you the way I've been challenged, which is to look at your life from his perspective. That God is returning, he's going to return, and he's going to want to return on his investment in you. And he's going to want you to double it. And so what has God given you? And stop saying, God's given me nothing because he has given you far more than you realize. And to look at your life and say, God, what have you given me, and what can I do with it? How can I invest it? I think the most obvious application is financial. I know nobody wants me talking about money. But that's the most obvious application to this parable, is it not? The money you have, however little you think you have, and it's it's weird being in America because everything is more expensive. It's amazing how far 20 bucks will go in other places. Versus $20 here is like you could lose $20 and you'd be a little annoyed, but you wouldn't go tearing your house apart for 20 bucks. That's a lot of money in other places. So the scale is a little weird. So I think you need to, I don't want to get into some kind of guilt-trippy, weird poverty thing where we're like, well, I feel bad for the way God's blessed me. But just ask God to show you what he's given you. It might be some skill you have. It might be some your spiritual gifts. It might be the money you have in the bank. It might be the job you have. Begin to ask God to transform the way you think of faithfulness. Not quitting is not enough. Preserving what you have is not faithfulness. He called that person a lazy servant. Not my words, Jesus' words. So let's not be lazy servants. So I'd like to pray for us um, that God would give us his perspective on what we have. And if you've been suffering from the disease of comparison to your neighbor so that you've lost faith for what you have, however little or great it may be, I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would dispel you of that and that you would get God's perspective on what you have. Amen? And that he would give you some direction about what to do with it.
That's where I'm at. So why don't we stand up together and I'll pray that for you. God, thank you for what you've given us. Each one of us has been blessed by your hand. And God, I do pray that you would help us to stop comparing ourselves one to another, but instead we would just look at you. You're a good father. And you have given us what we need to do what you've called us to do. We have an abundance, and so often our abundance works against us. So God, I pray for first for those who feel as though they have the one talent and they're just scraping by. And they feel this, they have this complaint in their heart that you haven't given them enough. God, I pray that you would give them a new perspective right now by your spirit. God, to see what you have given them. And that they would be content with it, but not content to not grow it. God, that you would give them an urgency to take what you have given them and multiply it for your kingdom. And God, I pray for those of us who have two or five talents, who feel sort of comfortable as things are right now. When the bumps of the economy come along, we complain about it, but it really doesn't hurt us that much because we have buffer. God, I pray for for those, God, that you would put an urgency in our heart to multiply the talents you've given us, the resources that we have, that they would not be spent completely on ourselves and our own comforts and on securing what we have and protecting it from loss. But God, I pray instead we'll be risk takers. God, with everything we have, whether it's money or time or energy or anything else, God, that we would be people who multiply the things you've given us. God, I want to see exponential increase in our output as people. God, help us. And God, I pray that supernatural, creative plans will be made in this church. God, new, new businesses, new ministries, new outreach, new thoughts, new ways of doing things, new ways of thinking, new ways of approaching problems. God, new ways of looking at our culture. God, new ways of representing Christ to the world. God, I pray that this creativity would come out of us because we, have, we are urgently aggressively moving forward with what you've given us. God, we want you to be pleased with what we've done with what you've given us. God, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.